0: Hey, welcome to Trapademic Podcast, which will be number seven uh, so far. Today's podcast is going to be a little different um, in that I want to to read to you uh, a chapter essentially from Rennie Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race because um, it really it really sort of moved me deeply sort of hidden history of race relations in britain in this country and the book is a must read and i i struggle to put it down it's uh, her first book um why i'm no longer talking to white people about race uh she's an activist and uh, award-winning journalist um, it's a massive book it's really important uh, considering the way things are around the world at the minute particularly regarding race and uh yeah I, j- I just want wanted to read it and uh see what you guys think. So, I hope you enjoy. It wasn't until my second year of university that I started to think about black British history. I must have been about 19 or 20, and I'd made a new friend. We were studying the same course and we were hanging around together because of proximity and a fear of loneliness rather than any particular shared interests. Ticking class boxes for an upcoming term found us both opting to take a module on the transatlantic slave trade. Neither of us knew quite what to expect. I'd only ever encountered black history through American centric educational displays and lesson plans in primary and secondary school. With a heavy focus on Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman's Underground Railroad and Martin Luther King Jr. The household names of America's civil rights movement felt important to me. But also a million miles away from my life as a young black girl growing up in North London. But this short university module changed my perspective completely. It dragged Britain's colonial history and slave trading past incredibly close to home. During the course, I learnt that it was possible to jump on a train and visit a former slave port in three hours, and I did just that, taking a trip to Liverpool. Liverpool had been Britain's biggest slave port. One and a half million African people had passed through the city's ports. The Albert Dock opened four decades after Britain's final slave ship, the Kitty's Amelia, set sail from the city, but it was the closest I could get to staring out at the sea and imagining Britain's complicity in the slave trade. Standing on the edge of the dock, I felt despair. Walking past the city's oldest buildings, I felt sick. Everywhere I looked, I could see slavery's legacy. At university, things were starting to slot into place for me. In a tutorial, I distinctly remember a debate about whether racism was simply discrimination, or discrimination plus power. Thinking about power made me realise that racism was about so much more than personal prejudice. It was about being in the position to negatively affect other people's life chances. My outlook began to change drastically. My friend, on the other hand, stuck around for a couple of tutorials before dropping out of the class altogether. It's just not for me, she said. Her words didn't sit well with me. Now I understand why. I resented the fact that she seemed to feel that this section of British history was in no way relevant to her. She was indifferent to the facts. Perhaps to her, the accounts didn't seem real or urgent or pertinent to the way we live now. I don't know what she thought, because I didn't have the vocabulary to raise it with her at the time. But I know now that I was resentful of her, because I felt that her whiteness allowed her to be disinterested in Britain's violent history, to close her eyes and walk away. To me, this didn't seem like information you could opt out from learning. With the rapid advancement in technology transforming how we live, leaps and bounds being taken in just decades rather than centuries, the past has never felt so distant. In this context, it's easy to view slavery as something terrible that happened a very long time ago. It's easy to convince yourself that the past has no bearing on how we live today. But the Abolition of Slavery Act was introduced in the British Empire in 1833, less than 200 years ago. Given that the British began trading in African slaves in 1562, slavery as a British institution existed for much longer than it has currently been abolished, over 270 years. Generation after generation of black lives stolen, families torn apart, communities split, thousands of people being born into slavery and dying enslaved, never knowing what it might mean to be free. Entire lives sustaining constant brutality and violence, living in never-ending fear, generation after generation of white wealth amassed from the profits of slavery, compounded, seeping into the fabric of British society. Slavery was an international trade. White Europeans, including the British, bartered with African elites, exchanging products and goods for African people, what some white slave traders called black cattle. Over the course of the slave trade, an estimated 11 million black African people were transported across the Atlantic Ocean to work unpaid on sugar and cotton plantations in the Americas and West Indies. The records kept were not dissimilar to the accounts of a modern day business as they documented profit and loss and itemized lists of black people purchased and sold. Human livestock, these black cattle, was the the ideal commodity. Slaves were lucrative stock. Black women's reproductive systems were industrialised. Children born into slavery were the default property of slave owners. And this meant limitless labour at no extra cost. That reproduction was made all the easier by the routine rape of African women slaves by white slave owners. Profit and loss also meant documenting the deaths of black cattle. Because it was bad for business. The vast slave ships that transported African people across the Atlantic were severely cramped. The journey could take up to three months. The space around each slave was coffin-like, consigning them to live among filth and bodily fluids. The dead and dying were thrown overboard for cash flow reasons. Insurance money could be collected for those slaves that died at sea. The image of the slave ship Brooks, first published in 1788 by abolitionist William Elford, depicted typical conditions. It shows a well-packed slave ship. Bodies are lined up one by one, horizontally in four rows, with three short extra rows at the back of the ship, illustrating the callous efficiency used to transport a cargo of African people. The Brooks was owned by a Liverpoolian merchant named Joseph Brooks. But slavery wasn't just happening in Liverpool. Bristol too had a slave port. As well as Lancaster, Exeter, Plymouth, Bridport, Chester, Lancashire's Poulton Lafayette, Fou- and of course London. Although enslaved African people moved through British shores regularly, the plantations they toiled on were not in Britain, but rather in Britain's colonies. The majority were in the Caribbean, so unlike the situation in America, most British people saw the money, without the blood. Some British people owned plantations that ran almost entirely on slave labor. Others bought just a handful of plantation slaves with the intention of getting a return on their investment. Many Scottish men went to work as slave drivers in Jamaica and some brought their slaves with them and they moved back to Britain. Slaves, like any other personal property, could be inherited and many Brits lived comfortably off the toil of enslaved black people without being directly involved in the transaction. The Society for effecting the abolition of the slave trade which was founded in London in 1787 was the idea of civil servant Granville Sharp and campaigner Thomas Clarkson. Sharp and Clarkson formed the society with ten other men most of whom were Quakers. They campaigned for 47 years generating broad-based support and attracting high-profile leadership from members of parliament, the most famous being abolitionist William Wilberforce. The public pressure of the campaign was successful and an act of parliament declared slavery abolished in the British Empire in 1833, but the recipients of the compensation for the dissolution of a significant money-making industry were not those who had been enslaved. Instead, it was the 46,000 British slave-owning citizens who received cheques for their financial losses. Such one-sided compensation seemed to be the logical conclusion for a country that had traded in human flesh. Despite abolition, an act of parliament was not going to change the perception overnight of enslaved African people from quasi-animal to human. Less than 200 years later, that damage is still to be undone. That's the first bit that I'm going to read to you. A history of slavery in this country. Many, quite often I hear that when people start to talk about race, that, oh, it doesn't happen here. You're being overly sensitive. It's just what happens in the States which is stupid it's an ignorant and uninformed opinion and uh reading this will inform you so buy it or at least just listen on and the chapter continues to uh <coughs> shed light on the effects and really, it really brings to light how very, very recent, and I'll talk more on that after I've read that bit, how very, very recent this, a lot of this really is. Back to the book. After university, I was hungry for more information. I wanted to know about black people in Britain post-slavery. However, this information was not easily accessible. This was history only available to people who truly cared, only knowable through a hefty amount of self-directed study. So actively. So I actively sought it out, and I began by looking into Black History Month. The existence of Black History Month in the UK is relatively recent. It wasn't until 1987 that local authorities in London began putting on events to celebrate black contributions to Britain. Linda Bellows was born in London to a Nigerian father and a white British mother and it was under her leadership that a British Black History Month came to exist. At the time, she was leader of South London's Lambeth Council and chair of the London Strategic Policy Unit, part of the now defunct Greater London Council. The idea for Black History Month was to put to her was, sorry, the idea for Black History Month was put to her by Ansel Wong, Chief Officer of the Strategic Policy Unit's Race Equality Division. I said, yes, let's do it, she explained to me from her home in Norwich. I thought Black History Month was a great idea. What I wasn't going to do was make it like the American one, because we have a different history. There's so many people who have no idea, and I'm talking about white people, no idea about the history of racism. They don't know why we're in this country. Ansel organized the first Black History Month and Linda hosted the event. It was a London-wide affair. The decision to hold it in October was largely logistical. The United States have had their Black History Month in February since it began in 1970. Our guest of honour was Sally Mugabe, Linda explained. It was insufficient time to invite her. If we'd done it two weeks later... Then we wouldn't have got the people we needed. We were more inclusive, she added. Black was defined in its political terms, African and Asian. We only ran it for two years because Thatcher was cutting all our budgets. It would have been an indulgence. After two years of central funding and leadership from the London Strategic Policy Unit dried up, Black History Month continued in Britain, albeit sporadically. Today, Black History Month is firmly established in Britain and has been running for 30 years. It tends to consist of exhibitions of work from artists from the African uh, diaspora, panel events debating race and softer cultural celebrations like fashion shows and food festivals. Speaking to Linda, it felt like she was sceptical of the values of current day Black History Month activities. When I asked her why she wanted Black History Month in Britain, she said it was to celebrate the contribution That black people had made in the united kingdom it wasn't about hair it was history month not culture month there had been a history a history that i had been aware of from my own father's experience the history of blackness in britain has been a piecemeal one for an embarrassingly long time i didn't even realize that black people had been slaves in britain There was a received wisdom that all black and brown people in the UK were recent immigrants, with little discussion of the history of uh, colonialism or of why people from Africa and Asia came to settle in Britain. I knew vaguely of the Windrush generation, the 492 Caribbeans who travelled to Britain by boat in 1948. This was because they were the older relatives of people I knew at school. There was no black presence in Britain presentation that didn't include the Windrush but most of my knowledge of black history was American history. This was an inadequate education in a country where increasing generations of black and brown people continued to consider themselves British, including me. I'd been denied a context, an ability to understand myself. I needed to know why, when people waved Union Jacks and shouted, we want our country back, it felt like the chant was aimed at people like me. What history had I inherited that left me an alien in my place of birth? On the 1st of November 2008, at an event marking the 15th anniversary of the Institute of Race Relations, the Institute's director told his audience, we are here because you were there. That phrase has since been absorbed into black British vocabulary. Wanting to know more about what it meant. I reached back searching for evidence. The first answer I found was war. Britain's involvement in the First World War wasn't just limited to British citizens. Thanks to its rabid empire building, people from countries that weren't European, apart from colonisation, were caught up in the expectation of dying for king and country. When, in 2013, the British Council asked people about their perceptions of the First World War, they found that most Brits didn't have an understanding of the international impact it had, despite the moniker World War. Because of the reach of empires, the Council's report reads, soldiers and labourers were enlisted from all over the globe. Of the seven countries the British Council surveyed on the First World War, the vast majority of respondents thought that both Western and Eastern Europe were involved. In comparison, an average of just 17% thought that Asia was involved and just 11% of respondents identified Africa's involvement. It could be that this misconception about exactly who fought in Britain during the First World War has led to a near erasure of the contributions of black and brown people. This is an erasure that couldn't be further from the truth. Over a million Indian soldiers, or sepoys, Indian soldiers serving for Britain, fought for Britain during the First World War. Britain had promised these soldiers that their country would be free from colonial rule if they did so. Sepoys travelled to Britain in the belief that they would not only be fighting for Britain, but by doing so, They would be contributing to their country's eventual freedom. Their journey to Europe was unforgiving. They travelled by ship, without the appropriate clothing for the shifting climate. Many sepoys suffered from a bitter cold that they'd never before experienced, with some dying from exposure. And even during the war, sepoys didn't receive the treatment that they were expecting. The highest ranking sepoy was still lower in the army hierarchy than the lowest ranking. Sorry, the highest ranking sepoy was still lower in the army hierarchy than the lowest ranking white British soldier. If injured, a sepoy would be treated in the segregated Brighton Pavilion and Dome Hospital for Indian troops. The hospital was surrounded with barbed wire to discourage wounded sepoys from mixing with the locals. Around 74,000 sepoys died fighting in the war but Britain refused to deliver its promise of releasing India from colonial rule. A much smaller number of soldiers travelled from the West Indies to fight for Britain. The Memorial Gates Trust, a charity set up to commemorate Indian, African and Caribbean soldiers who died for Britain in both world wars, puts the number at 15,600. These soldiers were known as the British West Indies Regiment. recruited from poor areas. And similarly to India, there was a feeling among some would-be recruits that taking part in the war would lead to political reform at home. But this opinion wasn't widespread and there was a significant number of Caribbean people who were set against the West Indies fighting, calling it a white man's war. Despite the resistance of some, thousands of West Indians quit their jobs to travel to Europe. Again, the long boat journey was unforgiving. Britain needed the extra labour, yet the government failed to provide West Indians with adequate clothing to survive the journey, just as they had with the sepoys. In 1916 the SS Vidala, travelling from the West Indies to West Sussex, had to make a diversion to Halifax in eastern Canada. Hundreds of West Indian recruits suffered from frostbite, with some dying from exposure to the harsh cold climate. When they arrived, The majority of the British West Indies Regiment did not initially fight alongside white British soldiers on the battlefield. Instead, they were relegated to supporting positions, doing drudge work for the benefit of white soldiers. Their duties included strenuous labour such as digging trenches, building roads and carrying injured soldiers on stretchers. As white British ranks were depleted in battle, West Indian soldiers were given permission to fight. Almost 200 men had died in action by the end of the war. By 1918, resentment among West Indian soldiers was widespread. While the BWIR was stationed in Taranto, Italy, some men got hold of news that white British soldiers had received a pay rise that the West Indian soldiers had been excluded from. Outraged at their treatment, the soldiers went on strike gathering signatures for a petition to be sent to the Secretary of State. This quickly evolved into an open rebellion. During the Toronto mutiny, a striker was shot dead by a black non-commissioned officer, and a bomb was set off. The rebellion was quickly crushed, and 60, 60, su- suspected, 60 suspected rebellious members of the British West Indies Regiment were tried for their involvement in mutiny. Some were jailed, and one man was sentenced to death by firing squad. Mistreated West Indian soldiers returned home, and the crackdown on the Toronto mutiny contributed to a pushback. A push for black self-determination in the Caribbean. But there were also black soldiers who chose to stay on in Britain after the war. As the fighting came to an end and soldiers were demobilised, Black ex-soldiers living in Britain began to be targeted. These are people that fought for the country. That gave their lives and their freedom, essentially, to fight and die for a country that that couldn't pay the decency to just respect them as human beings. Back to the book. Riots always seem to kick off in the summer. On the 6th of June 1919, seven months after the First World War has ended, rumours, were doing the rounds in Newport, South Wales. It was alleged that a white woman had been slighted by a black man. As increasing numbers of angry and agitated white people shared the news among themselves, a braying mob assembled and then descended on homes of black men in the area. Some of the black men shot back with guns. Fights and scuffles over the next few days led to a Caribbean man stabbing a white man. Just five days later, on the 11th of June, The South Wales Echo reported a brake vehicle containing a number of coloured men and white women was going along East Canal Wharf. It attracted a crowd. Cardiff, another port city, had been whipped up in anti-black sentiment. On seeing these black men and white women together, a frenzied mob of white people began throwing rocks at the vehicle. It's not clear if anyone in the vehicle was injured. Days later, in violent protest at the audacity of interracial relationships, interracial relationships, another angry crowd of white people set upon a lone white woman, who was known to have married an African man. They stripped her naked. In the port city of Liverpool, similar race hatred was gaining ground. Post-war employment was scarce and over a hundred black factory workers suddenly and swiftly lost their jobs after white workers refused to work with them. On the 4th of June, 1919, a Caribbean man was stabbed in the face by two white men after an argument over a cigarette. Numerous fights followed, with the police ransacking homes where they knew black people lived. The frenzy resulting in one of the most horrific race crimes in British history. 24-year-old black seaman Charles Wootton was accosted by an enraged white crowd and thrown into the king's dock. As he swam, desperately trying to lift himself out of the water, he was pelted with bricks until he sank under the surface. Some time later, his lifeless body was dragged out the dock. It was a public lynching. the days after Charles Wotton's murder saw white mob rule dominating Liverpool streets as they attacked any black person they saw. These acts of vicious race hatred did not go unseen by the British government. Concerned by the levels of unrest across the country, the state responded in the only way it knew how. A repatriation drive. As a result, 600 black people were sent back to where they came from by September 1919. Despite its best efforts to pretend otherwise, Britain is far from a monoculture. Outward facing when it suited best, history shows us that this country had created a global empire it could draw labour from at ease, but it wasn't ready for the repercussions and responsibilities that came with its colonising of countries and cultures. It was black and brown people who suffered the consequences. Back to where they came from. So, instead of addressing hate crimes, you send the victims away. Blaming victims for being victims. Back to the book. But some of those people fought back. Born in 1882 in Kingston, Jamaica, Dr Harold Moody was not one of the young Caribbeans who fought for Britain in the First World War. Instead, he arrived in Bristol in 1904, age 22, with a focus on advancing his education he had his heart set on becoming a doctor and had spent time working at his father's successful pharmacy business in Kingston to save up the funds for his studies. With Jamaica still under British rule, his move to England wasn't a surprise. Among Jamaicans, Britain was seen as the mother country. Upon his arrival, he boarded an express train to London Paddington and took himself to a hostel. The Young Men's Christian Association now known as the YMCA, until he found somewhere more permanent to live. It was during these first days on British soil that he learned the mother country wasn't going to be as hospitable as he'd been led to believe. He struggled to rent and was turned away from a number of potential lodgings before managing to find a place in Cannonbury, North London. Once settled, Harold began medical training. He graduated in 1912 and set about looking for a job. He applied for a position at King's College Hospital, but his potential employers did not want to hire a black man. He tried again, applying for a position in South London with the Camberwell Board of Guardians. The board was part of Camberwell's Poor Law Parish, a local government organisation that oversaw the well-being of the area's most elderly and vulnerable residents with an infirmary, as well as managing children homes and workhouses. He was turned away from this job too, but not before being told the poor people would not have a, insert racial hatred, insert racial slur beginning with N, the poor people would not have a N attend to them. Determined to serve the community, Harold responded to these knockbacks by setting up his own private practice. A year after qualifying, Dr Moody's practice opened at 111 Kings Road in Peckham, south-east London. Although he'd faced overt acts of racist discrimination, it was his Christianity rather than his politics that drew Dr Moody to his activism. For him, racism was a religious issue, He was active in the wider Christian community. His respectable middle-class job positioned him as a beacon for black people in 1920s and 1930s Britain. He advocated on their behalf, quickly becoming known as a man who would help you if you were in need. The popularity and momentum led Dr. Harold Moody to form the League of Coloured Peoples in 1931. The League was both a Christian mission and a campaigning organisation, its objectives, published in its quarterly journal, The Keys, were to promote and protect the social, educational, economic and political interests of its members, to interest members in the welfare of coloured peoples in all parts of the world, to improve relations between the races, to cooperate and affiliate with organisations sympathetic to coloured people. First published in 1933, the Keys served as a written arm of the League, campaigning against racism in employment, housing, and wider society. In 1937, The Keys published a sternly worded exchange with the Manchester Hospital about the barring of black nurses' employment. The letter questioned a quote from the hospital's matron, L.G. Duffgrant, who had written quite openly, "'We have never taken coloured nurses for training here.' The question was once raised at nursing committee, and there was a definite rule that no one of Negroid extraction can be considered. Dr Moody, then President of the League, wrote to the hospital's board, only to find that no such rule was in place. "'There is,' read the reply from N Cobbeth, Chair of the Board, "'no rule against the admission of coloured women for training "'as nurses at the Manchester Royal Infirmary, "'and the board wish it to be understood,' that each individual application will be considered on its merits. Dr Moody's work with the League of Coloured Peoples was quite possibly Britain's first anti-racism campaign in the 20th century, and it would have far-reaching implications for Britain's race relations in the future. As Dr Harold Moody was doing pioneering work for black people while he was based in London, an aspect of his personal life, his relationship with a white woman and their mixed-race children, was seen as a point of great contention in British society at that time. Mixed-race relationships were controversial in the early 20th century, and in the northwest of England, these relationships were considered disturbing enough to justify academic research. In the late 1920s, the University of Liverpool was solidifying its social sciences department, headed up by anthropologist Rachel M. Fleming. Her research was on what she called hybrid children, those with black fathers and white mothers. With Liverpool being a port city, there were plenty of black seamen who had taken up permanent residence. Academics estimate that Liverpool's black population was 5,000 at the time. Against the backdrop of race fueled riots and the lynching of Charles Wooten, mixed-race relationships did exist but were seen by many as a social problem that needed to be stamped out. It was in this context that Rachel Fleming won the support of Liverpool's authority figures to research Liverpool's wretched, red, mixed-race children. She founded the Liverpool Association for the Welfare of Half-Caste Children in 1927. Mariel Fletcher, a University, of Liverpool, a University of Liverpool graduate working as a probation officer, was tasked with writing the association's first report. Her work meant that, through welfare services, she had contact with some of the poorest families in the city. And it was through this skewed lens, with some of Liverpool's poorest mixed-race families, that she conducted her research. The report... On an investigation into the colour problem in Liverpool and other ports, was published in 1930. It concluded with scant evidence that venereal diseases were twice as likely to be found in black seamen than white seamen, and that mixed race, or to use the language of the report, half-caste children were more likely to be sickly because of this. The children seemed to have frequent colds. Many were also rickety. And several cases were reported in which there was a bad family history for tuberculosis, wrote Miss Fletcher. Perhaps reflecting popular attitudes at the time, Fletcher deemed mixed-race girls and women as tainted by their race. Writing, Only two cases have been found in Liverpool of half-caste girls who have married white men. And in one of the, these cases, the girl's family forced the marriage on the man. In her report, Muriel Fletcher organized the white women and chose to have relationships with black men into four categories. Uh, sorry. Muriel Fletcher organized the white women who chose to have relationships with black men into four categories: the mentally weak, the prostitutes, the young and reckless, and those who felt forced into marriage because of illegitimate children. Not, you know, two people in love, regardless of the racist country they're in. Let's go back to the book. Children who were researched in the study had their eyes examined and their noses measured, with their facial features categorised either as Negroid or English. Commenting on the fact that mixed-race young adults struggled to find work Fletcher wrote, Mothers of a better type regretted the fact that they had brought these children into the world, handicapped by their colour. Echoing the hugely popular eugenics movement at the time, it seems that Muriel Fletcher thought that race mixing was such an abomination that the children of mixed race relationships had little future. As eugenicists called it, miscegenation. Popular at the beginning of the 20th century, the British eugenics movement believed that social class was determined by biological factors such as intelligence, health, and the vague criteria of moral values. Eugenicists argued that those with desirable qualities should be encouraged to reproduce, while those without should be discouraged. The racism was inherent here. Whiteness was to be aspired to, whereas any hint of black heritage was considered a kind of contamination, leading to a hard line against mixed-race relationships and mixed-race people. Despite support from influential names like John Maynard Keynes and George Bernard Shaw, there was no legislation passed in Britain to cement eugenics into the workings of the state, for example, forced sterilisation and a 1931 private member's bill advocating this was outvoted in Parliament. On publication, Muriel Fletcher's report on an investigation into the colour problem in Liverpool and other ports had a national impact, with a representative of the Anti-Slavery Society calling it an extraordinarily able document containing the most impressive and authoritative detail in a recent study on the report, academic Mark Christian argued that it had long-lasting negative effect on the black people of Liverpool and cemented the use of the term half-caste, which I've heard recently as well. I've, heard, I've You still hear that today. If you're still listening to this and thinking, well, it was so long ago... You know how does this now affect me? How does this have anything to do with with me or the way things are run currently? The next bit will really hopefully, if you still have those thoughts, put that to bed um, because the next bit is concerned with history that's not that long ago. currently if you are 50 you were born if you're in your 50s you were born in the era that's coming up so you would have been born in the 60s so it's coming up so the people in charge of the country back to the book The aftermath of yet another world war brought with it fresh labour demands, and Britain once again encouraged immigration. When the SS Empire Windrush sailed from the Caribbean to England, it carried 490 Caribbean men and two Caribbean women, all of whom were prepared to muck in with the job of restoring a post-war Britain. The Windrush docked at Tilbury in Thurrock, Essex, on the 22nd of June 1948. That same year, the government introduced the British Nationality Act, a law that effectively gave Commonwealth citizens the same rights to reside as British subjects. The country's black population continued to rise. Between 1951 and 1961, the Caribbean-born British population grew from 15,000 to 172,000, with the majority of those people from Jamaica an increase in population from 6,000 to 100,000. By 1958, Nottingham's black population numbered 2,500. But a decade of legislation explicitly welcoming Commonwealth citizens to Britain had not changed attitudes on the ground. Quotes from a local newspaper reported a colour bar in Nottingham's pubs, with black men expected to stand aside until white people had been served. White resentment towards the city's black residents was rife, and black resentment at white resentment was simmering. On the 23rd of August 1958, an altercation in a pub between a white woman and a black man spiralled out of control. Reports on what sparked the following events are sketchy. What we do know is this. Later that day, a thousand people had crowded into St Anne's Well Road, ready to riot. Razors, knives and bottles were used as weapons, and eight people were hospitalised. What happened in Nottingham was also occurring in other parts of the country. On the 20th of August in Notting Hill, West London, a group of teddy boys, young rock and roll loving white men who wore creeper shoes and suits, set upon the streets with the sole objective of attacking black people. They called themselves the N-hunters Again, insert racial slur. That night, their violent spree put five black men in hospital. At the time, Notting Hill was a poor and overcrowded area of London, with desperation for housing exploited by the notorious slum landlord Peter Ratchman. Ratchman's Rashman. reputation was so poor that his name became a synonym for bad treatment of tenants. Chambers' 21st century dictionary defines Ratchmanism today as exploitation or extortion by a landlord of tenants living in slum conditions. It was black people who fell prey to Ratchman's small, dilapidated properties and extortionate rents. They had very little choice. Oral histories from those who lived through these times report no blacks, no dogs, no Irish signs in the windows of other more respectable properties. This only exacerbated poor race relations in the capital. Nine days after the hunting spree from Notting Hill's teddy boys and a mixed-race married couple, a black man and white Swedish woman, were arguing outside Latimer Road tube station. It was an August bank holiday. With many off work, the argument drew a crowd of white men who jumped in to defend the woman, perhaps believing that she was under attack. Spotting the onslaught, some black men got involved to support her husband. They began fighting each other. Later, interviews with white rioters suggest that there was a rumour going around that a black man had raped a white woman. This scuffle outside a train station quickly escalated into 200 white people roaming the streets chanting racist abuse. As the fighting intensified... Some white rioters berated the police for holding them back from attacking black people. The riots stretched on for three whole days. Swastikas were painted on the doors of black families. Black people fought back with weapons and makeshift Molotov cocktails. Those black people who were stopped on the street by the police during the violence stressed their need to defend themselves. No fatalities were recorded, but over a hundred people, the majority of them white, were arrested. In 2002, prematurely released government files revealed that the police detectives had successfully convinced then-Home Secretary Rab Butler that the Notting Hill riots weren't about race, but instead were simply the work of hooligans. Whereas there certainly was some ill-feeling between white and coloured residents in this area, wrote Detective Sergeant M. Walters, it's abundantly clear much of the trouble was caused by ruffians, both coloured and white, who seized on this opportunity to indulge in hooliganism. No mention was made of the N-hunting teddy boys. After Nottingham and Notting Hill, race relations in Britain were rapidly deteriorating. It was becoming clear to post-windrush black people in Britain that they would not be allowed to live quietly, to work, pay tax and assimilate that instead that they would be punished for their very existence in Britain. Black and brown labour had proved integral to Britain's success in both world wars but black people themselves would face extreme rejection in the decades that followed. Throughout the 1950s the government was reluctant to recognise that the country had a problem with racism but there was some movement In 1960, backbench Labour MP Archibald Fenner Brockway repeatedly tried to bring forward a race discrimination bill with the aim of outlawing discrimination to the detriment of any person on the grounds of colour, race and religion in the United Kingdom. Every single one of the nine times he tabled the bill, it was defeated. I'll say that again a race discrimination bill with the aim of outlawing discrimination to the detriment of any person on the grounds of colour, race and religion in the United Kingdom. Every single one of the nine times he tabled the bill, it was defeated. On the other end of the spectrum, in 1959, Oswald Mosley, founder of the British Union of Fascists, saw fit to return to parliamentary politics after stepping down in 1930. He stood in a constituency near Notting Hill and advocated the repatriation of immigrants, losing with an 8.1% share of the vote. It wasn't until less than a decade after both the Nottingham and Notting Hill race riots that the state attempted to pose a solution to Britain's racism problem. Coming into effect on the 31st of May 1962, the Commonwealth Immigrants Acts drastically restricted immigration rights to Britain's Commonwealth citizens. Even the wording was different. The 1948 British Nationality Act used the word citizens to describe those from the Commonwealth countries. In 1962, they were described as immigrants, adding a new layer of alien to people who had enjoyed the right to reside just 14 years earlier. With a new emphasis on skilled workers, the Commonwealth Immigrants Act stated that those wishing to move to Britain now needed a work permit to settle in the country. The logic behind this still prevails today. 1962 is not that long ago think about that for a second just let that sort of sink in you're being told you're an immigrant whereas 14 years previous you're a citizen you're it's okay you you, you come here you're welcome in this country 14 years later you're told You're not one of us, you don't belong here, you're an immigrant. That's fucking disgusting. Back to the book. Then, in 1965, Britain's first ever race relations legislation was granted by Parliament. The Race Relations Act was an odd move for the British government having made such a strong statement against the free movement of its Commonwealth citizens just three years earlier. The Act stated that overt racial discrimination was no longer legal in public places, although it didn't apply to shops or private housing. At the time, the BBC reported those specific acts of discrimination included refusing to serve a person, an unreasonable delay in serving someone or overcharging, A race relations board was created as part of the Act. Its purpose was to receive complaints of and monitor racist incidents. No mean feat when the 1961 census had put the general population at 52,700,000. There was no way of knowing the exact number of non-white people living in Britain as the census didn't include a question on race until 1991. Barely any complaints were made to the board, and those that were, were almost futile. It had no authority to punish those against whom complaints were made. Instead, its role was one of mediation between the complainant and the organisation or person being complained about. Britain's first Race Relations Act was tepid. It didn't tackle endemic housing discrimination and had enough caveats to allow wiggle room for those who were intent on keeping black people in Britain as second-class citizens. An inadequate antidote to decades of targeted violence and harassment, the Race Relations Board appeared to exist only for posturing reasons. Most black and Asian people in Britain didn't even know it existed. The 1965 Act's weaknesses were obvious. The efforts to challenge racism came from the very same state that had sanctioned racism decades earlier with repatriation drives in the face of racist riots. The same state that picked up and disposed of black and brown bodies at its own convenience. The act was strengthened three years later, outlawing the denial of housing, employment or public services on the grounds of race. However, government services were exempt from legal challenges. At the time, the BBC reported the new Race Relations Act is intended to counterbalance the Immigration Act and so fulfil the government's promise to be fair but tough on immigrants. People who, not that long ago, weren't immigrants. They were citizens of the country. This is where it gets to the point where British history is is different. The history of black people in Britain is very different to that of America. And this book, I couldn't put it down for, for just how horrific the levels of disrespect, the levels of racism and that when you're experiencing these races, these, these, this racism this oppression, you would think you know, take it as high as you can, you know, the government will protect us, we're citizens and they go ahead and fucking change the rules and now you're an immigrant. On the 7th of March 1965 African-Americans were beaten bloody on a civil rights march led by Martin Luther King Jr. They were demanding their constitutional right to vote. Two years before that now iconic day in the west of England, 19-year-old Jamaican Guy Bailey made his way to a job interview with Bristol Omnibus Company, the city's bus service. Paul Stevenson, a local youth worker, had arranged the interview for Guy, first ensuring that there were jobs available and that Guy had the qualifications to do the work. But when Guy turned up to his interview, he found that it had been cancelled. Recounting his interview to the BBC 50 years later, Guy recalled the exact moment he was rejected by the receptionist. She said to the manager, Your two o'clock appointment is here, but he's black. And the manager said, Tell him we have no vacancies here, or vacancies are filled. That Guy was turned down was not a surprise to Bristol's 3,000-strong black community, the majority of whom had settled in Britain from the Caribbean after the Second World War. For them, racism in the bus service was a long-held suspicion. Meddy had interviewed with Bristol Omnibus Company, only to be turned down. Everyone who worked at the bus company was white. But Guy Bailey's interview wasn't a coincidence. It had been set up by a small group of young men, Roy Hackett, Owen Henry, Audley Evans and Prince Brown. The group called themselves the West Indian Development Council. They asked Paul Stevenson to work with them on their plan and he agreed. Paul already knew Guy who was a student at the night school he taught at. Guy was a good interview prospect. He was clean cut, already employed, studying part-time and active in a Christian youth organisation. As soon as Guy was refused an interview, the group arranged a press conference. Local reporters crowded into Paul's flat to hear exactly what had happened. A photo shoot was arranged with Owen echoing Rosa Parks by sitting at the back of a bus. As both local and national press reported on the case, pressure mounted on the bus service's general manager, Ian Patey. When the Bristol Evening Post pressed him, he said, You won't get a white man in London to admit it, but which of them will join a service where they may find themselves working under a coloured foreman? Paul and the West Indian Development Council, won the support of local students, saw speeches in favour of their cause from politicians and learned sympathetic editorials in the local press, but Paul was also repeatedly ignored by the bus company and the Transport and General Workers' Union. Though often divided by work disputes, both management and the trade union found themselves united by racism. They had an agreement, the kind that lent itself well to discrimination. The bus company was not to hire anyone not already approved by the local TGWU branch. Even though Ian Patey's comments are on the record, Bristol Omnibus Company deflected accountability instead, passing it along to the union. Racism had infected workers' solidarity with a union representative at the time insisting that more black workers would be taking away jobs for prospective white employees and that employing them would mean reduced hours for current employees. Think about what that means for a second. The union who defends workers, their defence of workers was not that the companies were being racist. It was that if you start not discriminating based on race and you start just hiring people based on merit you're going to hire some black people and that that would mean you'd have fewer white employees and reduced hours for the white employees. So even the unions something, things created out of liberal ideas and labor ideas were racist. As the campaign continued, Paul was harshly criticized. Ron Nethercott, Southwest Regional Secretary of the Union, wrote an article in a national newspaper calling Paul dishonest and irresponsible for his critics. It was his activism that was the root of the problem, not the colour bar. Some of these statements led to a libel case, which Paul won. Meanwhile, every single one of the city's West Indian residents were boycotting the bus service. One campaign leader told the local newspaper, although it's hard to tell, many white people are supporting us. The campaign drew support from Trinidad's High Commissioner, Sir Leary Constantine. Over a 100 university students... Marched in support and everyone boycotting the bus service either walked or cycled to get around the city. That's how you protest, you protest with your, with the pound, you protest with the dollar, you protest with your money. And you do it. If the people in charge, the people making all the fucking money are racist. That's how you get them protest with your money. The day before Martin Luther King Jr. told an audience of 250,000 that he had a dream, a meeting of 500 bus employees met and agreed to discontinue Bristol Omnibus' company, unofficial colour bar. The day after, General Manager Ian Patey committed to ending it for good. Speaking at a press conference, he announced the only criterion will be the person's suitability for the job. But it's important to note that to this date, Bristol Omnibus, now merged with another company, and eventually renamed First Somerset and Avon, has never apologised for its actions. Neither has the Bristol branch of the Transport and General Workers Union since merged with Unite, the union that's not difficult to do is it to announce a, a public apology for something that's in your company's history that's really not hard to do to to know that that's wrong and actually be sorry about that and then make the public apology sort your life out you knight I first learnt of the Bristol bus boycott as a graduate in 2013 when I was working at the Race Equality think tank, the Runnymede Trust. A small team of us travelled to Bristol to launch a campaign. As well as running a pop-up come and talk about racism shop, we also held evening events around the city centre. One of those events was with Paul Stevenson. By then he was in his late 70s, upstairs in the event space of Foyle's bookshop, Paul, His voice withered by age and activism and righteous rage commanded the attention of the whole room. I felt like I was listening to history. That puts into perspective how short ago, how short a period of time this was. These blatant acts of racism. They're in the lifetimes of your grandparents and some of your parents. I've had many discussions with young people who who don't understand the ramifications of colonialism and slavery in this country just because they figure it was so long ago, but it's these things the 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 the, the as soon as there's racial tension you you repatriate and you' you're, you're your goal is to send black people away rather than deal with any kind of racism and educate people into why it's a stupid idea to be racist those things are not that long ago they're in our lifetime the effects of those things are what people don't understand so we under- we understand the idea of racism in this country But we don't understand where it came from. We don't understand how fucking recent it is. We don't understand the effects of saying, oh, it's not all that bad. Like, you're not informed in order to make that decision or that it's ignorant. It's based on ignorance. It's not based on information. Back to the book. Around the same time as Bristolians were organising themselves against a colour bar, white nationalist activity in Britain was gaining ground. The National Front, a whites-only anti-immigration and far-right political party, was stoking anger and resentment among British people. Formed in 1967, the National Front has close links to white supremacist movements globally. At the height of their growth in the 1970s, party members adorned themselves with Union Jacks and St George's flags, as though they felt their politics represented the epitome of Britishness. Just over a decade after its formation, the National Front stood over 300 people in the 1979 general election, and won almost 200,000 votes. Despite the growing popularity of white nationalist politics in Britain during the 1970s, it was black and Asian people who were considered volatile members of society. The National Front's membership eventually dwindled by the 1980s. But the sentiment of the party found its home in other forms of activism. In the 1970s, police officers often wielded a section of the then archaic 1824 Vagrancy Act. The section in question gave the police the power to stop, search and arrest anyone they suspected might commit a crime. This vagrancy act came to known, be known as SUS laws, taken from wording of the act that described a suspected person. Because the police didn't keep statistics on those, they were stopping under the Act. It's difficult to know just how many people were bothered by the police for the crime of not looking respectable. Anecdotally, anti-racism campaigners insisted that black people were being unfairly targeted by sus laws. The, no- the notion of who does and doesn't look suspicious, particularly in a British political climate that just 10 years earlier was denying black people employment and housing, was undoubtedly racialized. Such laws ensured a fraught relationship between black people and the police. This was intensified by public panic about mugging and muggers. In 1972, a violent and fatal street robbery in Handsworth Birmingham, led to near-constant press coverage of street robberies for the following year. Mugging was an American term, imported from police statements and press coverage in black, concentrated cities. The fear of mugging was imported too. Street robberies have always existed in Britain, but the importation of the word mugging brought with it a coded implication that the perpetrators were overwhelmingly black and that mugging was an exclusively black crime. Newspapers reported that it was a new trend. The fear of mugging was about so much more than the fear of crime and violence. It was about the anxieties of those who had been scared of black liberation struggles in the 1960s and their intense fears about around race, reparations and revenge. There was at least one documented incident of police officers arresting black boys for the crime of looking like criminals. On the 16th of March 1972, at Oval train station in South London, a group of plainclothes white police officers targeted and tackled four young black men, who also happened to be members of a radical black organisation, on public transport, later testifying in court that it was clear they intended to pick the pockets of passengers. But the only witnesses for the prosecution were the police themselves and the accused young men had no stolen property on them the oval four were imprisoned for two years each but were released a year early on appeal every single one of them maintained their innocence while the police were busy arresting black people for looking suspicious The National Front were capitalising on national anti-black feeling. In 1975, they organised a march against black muggings, which they led through London's East End. A year later, they found another white power cause to support. Leamington Spa bus driver Robert Ralph came a national news story in 1976 when he put up a sign outside his house that read, For Sale to an English Family Only. A previous version of the sign was even more extreme. To avoid animosity all round, positively no coloureds. The sign contravened the Race Relations Act and he was asked to take it down. He refused and was imprisoned for contempt of court. Ralph promptly went on hunger strike. The tabloid press used his imprisonment as ammunition to argue against what they call political correctness. The press made him a martyr. The press made him a martyr for the cause of being nice to each other. Political correctness. Of not offending, of not being racist, sexist, ableist, bigoted. Please read this book. It's called, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Rennie Edo-Lodge's book. So, her first book. Race relations in, in this country. I think a lot of people don't know about this history. You may have noticed at points in the book, you can maybe feel that... It's making me angry, and it does. It upsets me. Because this is my country of birth. And it upsets me that my country of birth will treat other people for whom this is also their country of birth like shit. I'll treat other people that are citizens because of the, the colonisation, the, the theft of other countries that Britain did. And to not have the decency after stingling your country and calling you British, making you uh, fight for king and country, making you fight for our monarchy, to not have the decency then to say, yeah, you're British, you can come here. Only for 14 years. And then when the people of Britain are still racist, the government, rather than addressing the racism of the country, the people of Britain, rather than addressing that and educating, reveals its own racism. Bowing down to the people and joining in with them in saying that it's a black people problem. So let's repatriate, send people back. 14 years is long enough to have had offspring as was demonstrated in the book with the figures a massive increase in black population in the country because people were welcome they were citizens of the commonwealth welcome to Britain seen as the motherland And they get here and you treat, you get here and they treat you like shit. The book is powerful. And uh, like I said, I, uh, I I can't put it down. I actually only bought it yesterday. But uh, I wanted to read that first chapter to you. Um, it won't be, it, I won't have bought it yesterday by the time the podcast comes out, that won't make any sense because I'm not releasing it the day I've recorded it. So scratch that from the record. But please, please buy the book and, and, and read it. It's. Uh, it makes me think how I, how I'm going to teach... The history of Britain to my son. And uh, that upsets me. It really does upset me. But it makes me... uh, Glad that we're not in those times. but now not ignorant of the sheer amount of work that needs to be done. As I said, these people are barely out of power. Many of these people are still alive. And the children of these people are in power. It really reveals the power relationship, power and race, how racism really is in it. sort of a an entwined version of the two, fitting really to have it after a whole podcast talking about power and essentially being nice with Tanya Beetham on episode five. I hope you enjoyed the book, the reading, and that it's not weird for me to have read a bit to you. I um. I hope it inspires you to read more on the subject. If, if you even if you don't choose to read uh, Rennie's book, but um, I urge that you do. Thank you very much for listening.